You are listening to the Future of Asia podcasts by McKinsey and Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. So welcome, everyone. Welcome to this episode of our Future of Asia podcast. Today's topic is how firms can get ahead of the next stage of the coronavirus crisis. We are now three months into the coronavirus crisis. It is first and foremost a humanitarian crisis. It is affecting all countries, all governments, and it's also affecting all companies around the region. Today, I am joined by Chris Bradley. He is a senior partner uh, based in Australia. He leads our corporate uh, strategy practice across Asia. I am also joined by Eleanor Bensley, an associate partner and part of the leadership of our corporate finance and strategy practice. Uh, she is also based in Sydney. So welcome, Chris, and welcome, Eleanor. Thanks, Oliver. Great to be here. Let me, let me get us warmed up and just hear from each of you. When you speak to your clients across the region, what are some of the things that you hear is on top of their minds? Yeah, well, I, I think there's kind of two realities that are colliding into each other for our clients. The first one is they understand that this is an unfreezing or a disequilibrium of epic proportions. Like this is really, really big and it's really profound. You know, we, we call it a tunnel to a new, uh, a, a, a new place or a next normal. And they kind of know that in times like this, in times of massive disequilibrium and shock, this is when industry structures are made. This is when many great companies are born and also when many great companies falter. So there's this feeling of kind of destiny or unfreezing about it. But the other reality they're confronting is that the uncertainty isn't going away anytime soon. And the tools that they have, what I call autopilot tools, like standard budgeting and the five-year plan, they're all completely um, useless now. They're, the budgets are kaput. The five-year plan might as well be a doorstopper. The idea that anyone with any humility could suggest that there's a clear roadmap through this kind of once-in-two-lifetimes kind of crisis, you, you know, you have to throw that out of the window. So my clients are in this very interesting place between they know it's a time of very important unfreezing and refreezing. The world is going to go back to a different place. but the normal tools they have and the normal approaches aren't going to cut it. So we've got a terrific tension at play here. And before I go to you, Eleanor, also, and they're doing this and thinking about this whilst they're also trying to keep their people safe while they're trying to manage cash, while they're trying to keep the factories running in whichever shape or form they, they can. So, this is a, a real conundrum for many leaders, I, I suspect. Yeah, so on the playing field, I think there are a bunch of clients where you start on the first square, which is short-term survival. But as this goes on and people kind of get used to it, they're moving to another square, which is more about long-term and more about repositioning and not just survival, but how are we going to kind of reimagine ourselves? So most of my clients actually did a really amazing job of that first square. They mobilized quickly. They made leadership responses that anyone would be proud of. And I, so many of our clients have done that. But the bit they're struggling with is moving to the next square. Eleanor, what are you seeing? Yeah, and I think sort of similar to that, at the same time as having to kind of move to that next square, as Chris has put it, there is so much uncertainty that I think our clients are, the clients I'm sort of talking to, are wanting to 
kind of recognise the need to think boldly, like recognise the need to sort of open the aperture on all of the potential kind of states of the world and how this could unfold, but at the same time recognising that day-to-day there's a business to run and, and that crucially they need to bring real clarity and direction to their teams about where to focus and what the priorities are kind of right now in, in the here and now. And so I think there's also a tension there between how do you kind of simultaneously keep in your in your mind the, the bolder potentially kind of industry shaping reimagination at the same time as ensuring that the day-to-day response, which is ongoing for you know for most companies, continues apace and safely. And this must be quite different sector by sector. Would you care to comment how different sectors are affected by uh, by coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things, certainly in some of the conversations I've been having, is around the extent to which COVID-19 causes companies or requires companies to really rethink and scrutinise, I think, some of the kind of core beliefs and assumptions about know how and why they are successful and what it is that they kind of you know what they do to make them competitive to you know appeal to customers and the extent to which that is going to potentially be kind of completely different in the next normal and I think sort of set sector by sector you see differences in the extent of you know potential long-term change and disruption in particularly in kind of customer behavioral shifts and so how boldly companies really need to think about the about the future. So I've been tracking pretty closely all of the capital markets reaction. And what you see is a is a very interesting picture. And the capital markets, yes, they're gyrating up and down. But if you look sector by sector, they're actually sorting quite in a way that looks quite rational. So when you actually look at the returns by sector, you see kind of three groups. There's the sectors that are where there's deep expected to be kind of deep um, value loss. And so you've got oil and gas, banks, insurance, air and travel, those kind of industries there. And also probably apparel, fashion, fashion and luxuries there as well, as well as real estate. You've got another group on the other side of companies in pharma, high tech, healthcare supplies, some consumer services, and more the everyday needs part of retailing like supermarkets who are actually doing well. Their stock prices are up. And then there's basically the broad middle of people like telecom players, uh, consumer goods that are kind of in the middle because they really are dealing with the broader the broader economic fallout. So we're, we're seeing that there's that sorting mechanism happening. However, I'm having conversations with clients in every single one of those groups and it doesn't feel that different because the uncertainty is there and and whether or not. And exactly as Eleanor says, this is a problem that exists on two axes. The first axis is we've got the shock of a lifetime or the shock of two lifetimes on the economy. And unusually, and what you have to go back to World War II to see a bigger demand drop in a shorter time. And it's no fluke. And that's because World War II is something that happened to the economy, not within the economy. And this is the same thing. It's more So you've got to think of it more like the impact of a war than the impact of a normal economic crisis. So there's the, what's the demand environment I'm going to come back into, which is going to be really reshaped. But there's a second question, and this is why this is what makes it a very broad question at every sector, which is what kind of industry norms, what kind of consumer norms am I actually coming back into? And that's because this is not just an economic issue, it's a behavioral change as well. 
And so even in um, telecom or even in retail, parts of the uh, economy that are kind of doing so-called better, they still have to deal with that other axis, which is, hey, I'm going to come back to a world where consumers, where regulators uh, might be thinking quite differently than they were before this crisis. Yeah. I, I do guess that one of the differences between your three groups is that the, the, some of the companies in the first group will actually be think, you know, worried about survival, right? The airlines, are they going to be around or an oil and gas company or an oil field service company, will they actually survive? So they do have some extra challenges, let's, let's put it that way. I've heard you in the past, Chris, talk about this period as if, and I think I'll get this quote right, it's like we are in a long, dark tunnel. We do not know how long this tunnel is. And we actually don't know what's on the other side of the tunnel. I think that kind of describes the situation very well. But if, if we just care to at least start thinking about what could be on the other side, we talk about the next normal. What are some of the things that you would say could happen uh, in that next normal? First of all, I always start these conversations with, we don't know. So this, there's a lot of nons in this crisis. There's a non-linearity. So small changes in the rate of R, for example, make massive difference. There's also non-finality because we've seen every time someone tries to draw a line on this thing, it's not really over. This is going to be full of false dawns. And there's also what I call non-having a clue. We've just got to be very humble and realize that the world, you know, so certainly when we, we get calls from clients, oh, which of your nine scenarios are most likely? We say, well, that's actually the wrong question. The right question is, given that there's this much uncertainty, what's the right set of responses I can have that I've got the right plays in place that are going to be robust to that uncertainty? So we're in a long, dark tunnel. There's going to be twists and turns. We don't know how long the tunnel is. We at some places you're going to come out and it's going to feel like there's a light, but it's not really. And then we are going to come out to a new, uh, a next normal. Uh, uh, you know, Aradnadi Roy put it very eloquently in the Financial Times saying this is a portal to a new place. And I thought that was a great kind of call to action there. Of let's, let's try and make that a new place we want to be in. I thought that was, that was really inspiring. So on this other side of the tunnel, though, we're inviting our clients to kind of think through basically four main realities. And they go to what kind of demand environment I'm coming back to. And how much is my business model going to be disrupted? And there's some clients for which it's going to be much more about getting back as quickly as possible. So the demand is, the demand's going to come back and the business model is going to be roughly similar. There's others for which, hey, the business model is not going to change that much, the core technology or the behaviors, but it's a radically different demand environment. Maybe airlines are that. And that's where there's going to have to be fundamental restructuring of whole industries to accommodate a different demand environment. But there's other companies too that are going to be, well, hey, we're going to come back and our demand is going to be there, but it's going to be in a different size and shape. Consumers are going to be acting differently. They're going to have different risk preferences. They're going to have different ways of shopping or interacting digitally. And for those, it's really a game to shift your business model. But then there's, there's a few industries and maybe, maybe cruise lines is one of them for which it's not only a complete demand shock, but consumers, regulators, the whole environment is going to change completely around the business model. And that's where you've got to reshape. Now, here's the problem. I'm not brave enough yet to say any one industry fits exactly in one of those bubbles. So what we're inviting our clients to do is say, hey, given your old plan is, is kind of kaput and a new plan, let's try and make a new plan that lasts more than one month. And for that new plan to last more than one month, it's going to have to have uncertainty, not as an afterthought, oh, let's look at risk. It's going to have to have uncertainty literally at the very center of the plan, which is, okay, let's look through these scenarios. Let's find out 
what's true in all those scenarios, what's really different, what moves are going to be my no regret moves, and what are the small number of bets I'm going to hold and where am I going to build flexibility and optionality. So it's a more sophisticated strategic conversation, but uh, I think the times demand it. And here, I know that our, uh, you and our strategy practice globally is doing a number of what I think you call plan ahead type of engagements, workshops, and sessions. Can you explain what is that, Eleanor? So the idea of plan ahead team is to put uncertainty at the core of strategic decision making, exactly as Chris has just outlined. And so the idea is to isolate with our with our clients what are the core uncertainties that they face as an industry and as a company. And to sort of think about what are the scenarios for how those uncertainties might unfold into the future. And I think quite deliberately to be a bit provocative. In, in, in describing some of those scenarios to really kind of push the boundaries of how the world might might evolve to ensure that the sort of strategies really are resilient to kind of the full bookends of, of what could happen. And then scenarios are, are great, but ultimately useful only insofar as they then inform strategic decision-making. So the idea is then to, to pivot to understanding, okay, well, if that's the worlds that we might face, what are the set of moves that we need to make? What are the things that make sense across all scenarios? There's things that are kind of no regrets. And where do we think we might need to either place some, some bigger bets in order to kind of be well positioned for the different scenarios, but that might not be kind of optimal in, in all scenarios? So defining a kind of portfolio of moves that's resilient to the, all of the different ways in which the, the, the world might unfold. And then I think kind of crucially, not setting that in stone and, and walking away, but actually thinking very dynamically about that plan. And so coming back to it at, at sort of regular intervals, having a, establishing a sort of set of leading indicators that you're effectively watching all of the time. Because I think that the magic here is, you know, sitting here, nobody has a better crystal ball than, than somebody else. But at the same time, you want to be sort of the first to know, to really understand which world you are seeing and making sure that your strategy kind of is, is, is evolving and adapting to, to new information as it comes to light. Thank you. And let me go back. You earlier said, Chris, that, you know, the old tools, uh, the autopilot tools, I think you call them, are kind of no longer relevant. I think I heard you say budget five-year plans. Can you just expand a little bit on that? So in a time of really deep uncertainty, you've got to create things that are certain, if that makes any sense. The whole world can't just go to jello. Um, so uh, you do need a plan. So what we've actually um, been implementing with our clients is actually a very rigid, very by the book planning framework, because when the whole world's crazy, at least we know how to plan. So let's, and, and we've outlined that in a kind of a five frame process. That's, it, it, it's actually quite, prescri- quite prescriptive. Um, the other thing when the world's kind of crazy and we've got to, as Eleanor's saying, we've got to think really big thoughts. We've got to push the boundaries of our thinking, but we've also got to make sure that people on the coalface actually have direction every day and know what to do. So this is the art of the plan ahead team. So how do I, on one hand, take big possibilities out here, but translate them into a dynamic strategy so that every single month I know I'm doing the right things. There's a whole bunch of things I'm executing. There's a bunch of things I'm planning for. And there's a series of things we're exploring. And, you know, having done this with a few clients now, when you run through, you create these scenarios and uh, at first the clients 
feel like, oh, they're wacky and wild scenarios. But then you say, well, hey, let's go back to a recession that was half this depth and even wilder and wackier things happen. So maybe it's not so wild and wacky. Um, and when we, the, one of the main things, the first things we do is we call a system restore to January. So go back to January and say, how did you go into this crisis? What assumptions were you making? What initiatives did you have in the pipeline? What were the strategic beliefs you went in? Like when you get lost in the jungle, right? Go back to your last known point, check you've got all your people around you, take stock. And then we ask, okay, depending on which scenario happens, what percentage of that's still right? And the answer is anywhere between 20% and 80%. And 80%. So you're kind of like either a bit wrong on your strategy or it's, it's completely wrong. And you go, well, how confident are you to choose a scenario? And they go, well, I, you know, I, I can't choose a scenario. So what we've got to do is get back to um, a set of knowns. That's, that's the key. And the, the first set of knowns is what's no regret, as Eleanor said. So what are the moves that make sense across all scenarios? Let's just get clarity on that. Let's not muck around. Then there's a, another set of things. I know I need to explore this. So, for example, if you're in a, a consumer business, you need to explore, hey, if digitization triples in pace, um, how would that change my business and what decisions would I make differently? You, you def Someone in the company needs to be exploring that question. You've got to make sure they're doing it. And then there's some things that very practically would translate into, well, how would I create optionality? So, for example, if you have to close stores, because of coronavirus, which stores should you close and how quickly should you open them? Yeah, that creates, a, that creates a, a huge amount of optionality. But it actually translates down to a very mechanical level. That's why I keep using this analogy of autopilot to on the fly because when I talk to CFOs, they're making somewhere between 10 and 100 times more decisions than they're making before. And that's natural when you're flying in emergency conditions. It's not all under the – you're actually – you've got to have your hand on the dial. And so that goes to, well, what's your more dynamic model of management going to be and how are you going to get out of autopilot? And when it comes to purely financially, you go, well, a one-year budget's crazy. So, well, what's not crazy? Well, three-month budget, that's probably not crazy. Budgeting every line item and holding people, you know, strangling them on every variance, that doesn't make much sense. But what can you do? Well, you can create a minimum viable survival budget so people at least know the minimum funding pool they've got. And then you can have a queue for other, you can have release gates on other funding. So there can, when it translates down, you, you can actually have quite practical measures. The challenge for this, of course, is it's going to cut across all the traditional line. And, you know, in some ways we're using more military analogies to help companies think about how they got to manage because the, the old adage of a general manager, note the military term general in there, of someone integrating forward and, you know, uh, planning and execution and bringing it all together into P&L. That kind of doesn't work when you've got to go at this 100 miles an hour. So you're going to have to have different people exploring, different people planning, different people executing. So I, I, you know, I, I don't, what I don't want to say, Oliver, is there's this, well, we've got this tick the box, do these five things and everything's right. This is a very profound change and needs to be handled with a lot of thought. Thank you, Chris. For the listeners, uh, Eleanor, what, what are the five frames here? Just to outline them. So there, there are five. The first is to understand your starting position. The second is to define and develop scenarios. The third is to set your broad direction of travel. The fourth is to build your portfolio of moves. And then the fifth is to build a dynamic roadmap. Got it. And how have you found, have you found that CEOs and the top teams, do they have mind share to spend on this in the heat of the moment and keeping people safe? How, how do you think about that? How do they think about that? So I think in my conversations, 
I would I would say that CEOs really want to do this and recognize the need to be thinking expansively, but that it's tough. Um, and that in the sort of day-to-day, to, to the Chris's point around, you know, in, in, in uncertainty, decisions are being elevated to higher levels, you know, in the organization than previously. And so there is a lot more kind of day-to-day decision making going on. I think the the encouraging thing that that I've seen is is precisely a bit of trying to separate out who's thinking about what. And so rather than having everybody trying to be in execution and planning and reimagining to actually, certainly at this stage, be carving out different people to think about different things. Got it. Different people thinking about different things. So there's a team that that is thinking about the plan ahead. There is a team that is focused on the crisis and the resilience and return. Got it. Who is involved in these plan ahead uh, sessions? I assume that this is not the CEO sitting on his or her own. So who's involved, uh, Chris? So I think I mentioned before that a crisis response of the elevated pace of decision-making, this more dynamic nature of management, the idea that we can split the company off into lots of little autonomous units, that kind of is gone and we've got to think more cross-functionally than ever before. For example, we discovered very quickly working through this that the idea of a strategy team is kind of thinking thoughts over here while a finance team is thinking thoughts over here. That just ain't going to work anymore. And the same goes on the people side too, because there's going to be profound changes in the ways companies need to organize, how they need to incentivize and motivate their people. Uh, for example, one of the big questions a CEO asked me recently, we said, I get all that, but I, in my company, incentives really matter. And if people don't think their incentives are credible because the world has changed so much, what do I do? You know, these fundamental questions about how we manage the company. So the plan ahead response kind of has two parts to it then. It's got to ha- be very cross-functional. So it's got to bring together the right people, the people side, the finance side, the strategy side. Um, but it also has to separate work into different modalities or styles of work because when the world's gone crazy, you've got to create more focused work for people to do so they can achieve their achieve and have clarity. And so that's this difference between hardcore planning, kind of bigger exploration ideas, and then uh, day-to-day execution being kind of much more separate disciplines rather than lots of smaller pockets where all those things are are trying to happen together. Got it. You've had a number of these plan ahead sessions, conversations. What are some of the more counterintuitive things that you have seen or heard coming out of the plan ahead uh, conversations? I don't know if any episodes come, come to mind. So I'll, I'll throw one in and then Eleanor, you should throw one in too. The one for me is on big bets. So remember, we, we've kind of put our moves into there's no regret moves. There's options you want to create. There's safety nets you have, which is kind of hedges. And then there's the few big bets you're going to make where you have a convicted view and you're going to take something. But at first, when you're exploring, you're going to be exploring big bets that are completely antithetical to each other. So in one big bet, you'd go, actually, I'm going to open... I'm going to keep more stores open because actually, you know, um, there's going to be being, that's a massive opportunity to gain market share while, you know, but in another scenario, you go, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be the first to digitize. And so the, and they have completely different answers. And we're used to this world of strategy being very like one direction or the other, but the idea that you'd be exploring two ideas that actually fundamentally do not logically fit together is very strange most people but you have to equally explore those ideas so what what happens i assume that is to really start crystallizing the thinking and from there what are the trigger points that would lead you in one direction or the other is is that why you're kind of approaching these two extremes 
That's right. And you have to go, well, it finally comes down to, well, what do you need to believe? And what set of early indicators would have me turning left or right? But it's, pre- you know, prepared minds win wars, right? So, Eleanor, I think you, you've probably got some good examples to throw in too. Well, I mean, what, what I was just reflecting on as you were talking, Chris, is the other thing that feels a bit strange or that can feel a bit strange is some of the more, uh, I would describe as kind of behavioural elements, because I think when you're contemplating scenarios that might be sort of very, very different from today, your kind of hard-won strategic decisions of the past may need to be unwound and that there's a world in which decisions that you took very confidently six months ago um, now actually might need to be reopened or there could be value in reopening them. And I think it's, it's, it's much more about how you sort of bridge that you know, frankly, kind of more more social side of strategy around the sort of, the, we feel like we've made that decision very recently. We were very confident of that decision when we made it recently. And how do you kind of quickly, I guess, build conviction that that might be something that it's worth putting some energy around rethinking or, or replanning in light of how the world might change. And that's hard. That's hard to do. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Can we shift a little bit to talk about what does it mean to lead and to manage during these times? Because these are very different times, as you said early on, Chris. The uncertainty is just at a different level than ever before. The number of stakeholders that you have to be thinking about, you have to be keeping your people safe. You will be thinking about how do you help the government to stay the course. You know, there's many different types of, uh, of requirements that are placed on, on a CEO and a, and a senior executive. How do you find that leaders are leading and managers managing during these times? What's different? I'm sure many listeners will have this experience too, but I'm seeing two quite different responses. There's one group of leaders that are really energized by this. They see this as a time of unlocking, of being able to question things and, you know, making big moves and, um, you know, the the kind of pace and energy of this, you know, they is something that they, they find energizing. But there's another group of people for which the uncertainty really plays a very heavy toll. And I think for leaders, it's just important to understand that when we're talking, there's multiple audiences we've got to talk to and, and if legitimately so for, for lots of different reasons, different people will be seeing it quite differently. But I I keep coming back to great leaders are going to be able to hold two truths. The first one is the world can't go to jello. We've still got to run companies. We've got to know what we've got to bring clarity. But on the other hand, too much clarity or too much rigidity will be very bad for you. You won't be robust. And at at worst, you'll be incredibly vulnerable to bad things happening. Um, Or at best, you'll miss out on big things that that could have happened. You kind of miss the boat. So how do you do that? Well, I think you've got to have a spine. So uh, you can't be a jellyfish, you've got to have a spine. And that is, you've got to stand for something. So that's part of the power of this scenario analysis is it allows you to build genuine conviction for the true, true, true things that you can hold to no matter what. And they can become a set of fail-safe principles and ideas that can drive direction. The example we always use is a bit of a cheesy one from the 80s, but nonetheless useful is Bill Gates in the in the late 80s when he was driving Windows. He had 
But he had so what people don't remember is how many irons he had in the fire. He had a software deal with Apple. He had a joint venture with IBM. He had a Unix platform. He was investing in DOS. His strategy was very, very diversified. Of course, he had a central play on Windows, but he knew that he knew that he knew two big things. He knew there was going to be a PC on every desktop, and he knew that there was a winner takes all for the graphical user interface. And so while that, what that allowed him to do was to make this dynamic response bigger and faster because he stood for something really big and really meaningful, which is this vision of the future of PCs. And then that gave him the, the kind of guts and the wherewithal to say, yeah, you know what, I need to have multiple lines in the fire to do that. I need flexibility. So for me, it's about how do we hold two truths together and we bring those together by having a spine of what we're deeply convicted about. And the road to deep conviction actually comes from exploring the wider possibilities and being open to the fact that the world is pretty wacky. Eleanor, your thoughts? And, I, and all I would add, I think, is a, the, the final sentence to Chris would be, and would be, and we leading through, with empathy through that. Because I think picking up, Oliver, on your, your very first kind of introduction, I think you know, great leaders now recognise that their teams and their customers are going through a very you know, confronting experience and, and sort of have tension and stress in their lives. And so I think there's, there's all of the strategic dimensions we've, we've spoken about today, but there's also about how leaders show up um, for their people and their customers and their community that I think is going to be a, a critical marker of, of great leadership over the next kind of few months. Yeah, thank you. Now, plan ahead. It sounds good. If it is that great, what is McKinsey's plan ahead? Does McKinsey have a plan ahead team, Chris? Well, you tell me, Oliver. I, I hope we. I know. I, no, we do. We do. We definitely do because you know, just because we're McKinsey doesn't mean we don't have to change as well as everyone else does. Um, and you know, and it, it ultimately comes down to being deeply client focused and oriented around. Well, what is what are our clients going to need in this new reality, and and how might that how might that play back for us? And um, yeah, we do have, we have a plan ahead team set up and um, what we've also done in this spirit of kind of divided duties, at least in our geography is we've got some of our younger partners um, who maybe have fresher eyes and, and maybe aren't as addicted to some of these old assumptions that we've made to kind of come and really provoke us about, okay, well, maybe we've been thinking this way about um, something, but you know what? We better learn how to think this way about it. So I'm, I'm very excited to see um, what our plan ahead teams kind of provoke us with. Thank you. Listen, um, we're going to wrap wrap this now. Let me summarize. I'm going to go back and quote uh, Chris. Leadership now or today is about having multiple thoughts, sometimes contradictory thoughts at the same time, but one spine, and that spine is clear. That is, what do we stand for? What does a company stand for? And the middle of this whole crisis, to quote Eleanor, is the importance of leading with empathy. So thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Eleanor. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to this, ver uh, this episode of our podcast on Future of Asia. Thank you so much. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks, Oliver. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Mm -hmm.